Welcome back to the Progress City Radio Hour as we embark on our second in a series of Progress City Town Halls. Today we'll be speaking with a longtime themed entertainment designer, Bob Baranek. Bob spent 13 years at Walt Disney Imagineering, where he worked his way up from a model maker to art director, and in the years since, he's operated his own firm as well as working on major projects around the globe. Uh, Jeff, when we decided that this month's theme was going to be wilderness, we knew that Bob was someone we wanted to talk to. That's right. He got his start at a place called Frontier Village in San Jose and went on to do a lot of great models and uh, design for Disneyland Paris's Frontierland and a bunch of unbuilt things for Disneyland's Frontierland. So it seems like he is connected with this theme very well. Yes, absolutely. He spent a lot of time out on the wild frontier and has contributed to some iconic, iconic attractions, especially as you mentioned in uh, Disneyland Paris, that, uh, that uh, Phantom Manor, that Thunder Mountain, some really, really good stuff. So we were fortunate to be able to talk to him and hear his thoughts on not only the things that happened, but as you mentioned, a lot of things that didn't happen. Today, we'd like to welcome former Disney Imagineer and veteran theme designer, Bob Baranek. Bob, thanks for joining us today. It's a pleasure to talk to you guys. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, absolutely. You got your start in this business by working at a regional park. Yes. Frontier Village in San Jose. Yeah. Uh, could you just tell us a little about what that park was like and how you got involved there? Well, it was the park I grew up at. Uh, it was created by Lori Hollings and Joe Zukin. They had made a trip to Disneyland in late 50s. And uh, Joe had some money in his pocket. And so he hired Lori, who had worked briefly for WED back in 53, 54. He worked with Bruce Bushman for a while in, on Fantasyland. And uh, Lori had quite a, a storied background with uh, George Whitney and... and Cliff House and Playland at the Beach. He worked with um, George Powell on a bunch of stop motion animation for the films. I mean, he's a wonderful guy. He was probably wow. my favorite mentor. Wow. And Lori created the park um, for Joe and was an owner in it. And it, it was very successful. It was uh, kind of a fantasy child's frontier land, if you will. They were inspired by Frontierland Disneyland. And uh, I grew up there, and, and it was the first job I ever had. I was, I was actually hired to work in merchandise, and then I wanted to run the train so bad that I went and talked to um, Warren Weitzel, who was the operations manager, and he hired me on the train. And I got <laughs> to do that for a full year. That's nice. Yeah, as I've uh, you know gotten older, I've come to appreciate the the regional park more and more and the, yeah. the charm these parks can have. That was back in the days of Roadside America when, you know, people were in their cars. And yes. Frontier Village was like 30 miles outside of San Jose. I mean, it was out in the wilderness, literally. And uh, then the suburbia group came in around it. And that's really what closed the park down. Well, Laurie Hollings is a name that uh, a lot of people might not know, but was an influential guy and as you said had an influence on you. I wonder if you just talk a little more about him. Well, he claims that he was the guy that uh came up with the wonderful 
railroad tunnel gag in Mr. Toad. And I have no reason not to believe him because uh, he was a he was a wonderful guy. Great, great designer, had all kinds of terrific ideas about, you know, dark rides all over the country. He worked on Legend City, which was a, a wonderful park in, in uh, Mesa, Phoenix, Arizona. Um, and like I said, worked with George Whitney up in San Francisco area. But Lori um, was so wonderful about talking to me. And, you know, while I was running the train, the train station was right below his office, which was above the saloon. And so one year I made a little model of the train station. I did it. I just ma- took measurements of the real building and, you know, matched the colors and stuff. And I took the model upstairs and he hired me. And I became his park artist. I was doing graphics for the sales department. And he got, eventually I was able to work on rehabbing some of the attractions and doing park layouts. And the big thing that we were trying to do was expand the park because it was only 40 acres, but uh, Joe Zukin had owned over a hundred acres and he wanted to, you know, he knew Marriott's was coming in and he wanted to, um, expand and compete with them but that wasn't going to happen because of the suburbs around him i think it's probably really fun to work on a small park like that when you can really influence you can really have a big impact yeah you're everywhere the potential is amazing so i got to build a little model of the park expansion and work on layouts and that's laurie was probably my favorite mentor because his number one message to me was to go to school, stick with it, learn as much as you can. And he was, he was terrific about that. Cause you know, I started when I was 17. Oh, wow. The park closed in 1980. So those were very influential years. Wonderful memories. Yes, I would imagine. So, well, so from that, you went to work for, uh, Gary Goddard. I did some model building for the architectural industry for a while and then put together a really nice portfolio. But I, I picked a bad time to go, you know, shop it around L.A. because uh, Epcot had just finished. They laid off three, three to four thousand people and nobody was working. But um, Gary had started a couple of projects, the Baltimore Power Plant and the Savannah Exposition. And. He was really impressed with my portfolio. I, I was very lucky because he hired me on the spot. And, and we've been together since. I mean, back and forth before Disney, after Disney. A lot of years, Gary. Well, this uh, Baltimore project, it, I had never heard about this. Uh, Eddie Sato told me about it, and it blew my mind. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Jules Byrne. There's not a lot out there about it. A lot of people don't know about it. I just wonder if you could talk a little bit about it, I know there was this famous edict that there be no rides, that Six Flags didn't want rides, but there were elaborate shows. And just what was it like as an experience? Well, it was primarily walkthroughs and theater experiences. There were there were four major attractions, but there's a lot of food and merch. Uh, and Gary was really strong on putting rides into this. And Six Flags would have nothing to do with it. And Gary even wrote them a memo that, uh, he he has to this day that was, you know, he, it proved him right that, that they needed the rides because the attraction faltered. I mean, it didn't do well at all. Um, nobody knew what it was. The guests didn't understand it. Hmm. The the It was an art, art direction masterpiece, but it just wasn't compelling. And uh, they tried to rehab it a little bit in the second year of operation, and it didn't made it, make it past two years. It was a beauty, though. 
Yes, the, from the pictures, it looks very appealing. It's really interesting because we did some of the most elaborate show models you can imagine. And you go back through photos, and most people have trouble detecting the difference between the real attraction and the models. Oh, yes. Because they followed the models to a T. I mean, it was, it was, a, it was a terrific experience, but it just wasn't a compelling idea. That's a shame. Uh, some real marquee level talent was involved in that project. You had yeah. Herb Ryman and Colin Campbell and Mark Davis yep. and Albertino. Yep. Did you have a chance to work with any of them at that time? Yeah, I, I got to meet every one of them on that attraction. And I'll never forget the day Roy Disney even walked in. I thought I was looking at Walt. Really? So amazing. Yeah. Uh, Gary had invited Roy in to review the project. And, uh, and he was wonderful, Roy. Oh my gosh. All of them. I mean, you know, Mark tended to be angry because that was kind of Mark's, he was, he was pretty pissed then, you know, <laughs> he left Disney, but he had some terrific stories and he was, he was quite a mentor. He was wonderful to be around. Herbie was so sweet. Yeah. They were all there. It was great. Yes. Everybody always says that Ryman was a, was a very nice guy. It was a very sweet fellow. Oh my gosh. Oh yeah. Matter of fact, the very last thing that Herbie did was a rendering for Indiana Jones at Disneyland. And boy, we all cherish that piece of art. It's remarkable. He was, he worked as long as he did on, on all those later yeah. projects. It, it must've been a treat to be able to see him work. It was. And, and he was so genuine he was just a, just a beautiful person. And I'm so grateful that Eddie was able to bring him in for main street primarily, but that's when we kind of harnessed him for Indy to do yes. a little bit of work for Indy. Yes. Well, it was good that these old timers were able to, were valued by your generation and were able to be, you know, used again and really feel as if they were valuable. And now I'm one and it's happening again. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> well, good. <laughs> Time marches on. Uh, well, another, another attraction you worked on at Landmark it turned out to be kind of a cult classic. And this is the monster plantation at Six Flags Over Georgia. Yeah. This is something I've never right. experienced myself, but I've always heard people talk about as people who grew up in that area. This has kind of a cult appeal. I wonder if you had any memories, memories of that project. I do because we worked on it twice. Um, Phil Mendez was the character creator and boy, is he a riot? Um, they, I, I don't know if you, I guess you do know that originally it was the Oki Finoki swamp ride right. done by Sid and Marty Croft. And they wanted to update it with better animation and better sets. And it lasted a long time. I mean, it was a huge hit. And, um, when was it? It was 2010 when we went in and rehabbed it and it became monster mansion. And we added, we, we really bumped the sets way up. And what I was able to do as the field art director was to make all the characters closer to what Phil had drawn than they were the first generation. So uh, they, yeah. they were, they looked much better. And then we added a whole level of special effects and stuff to it. And, um, it still is one of the more popular dark rides. I, uh, in preparation, I had watched a bunch of videos about this the other day and, uh, the older version and the newer version. And it looks really nice. You added in a lot of, 
bubble effects, yeah. water effects, and yeah. it really yeah. pops in a way that it it didn't quite pop as much before. So it it was a nice upgrade. It looks like great lighting. Yeah, the sets are are a hundred times better than they were the first time. It's must be fun to revisit and to be able to spruce something up like that i feel like i've had more opportunity with that than anybody else in the industry because i've been to uh monster mansion williamsburg for what was the enchanted lab and we turned into ireland with uh, castle sullivan and um also chocolate world in hershey yes yes that's another fun one that uh, i was always when i learned about that i was a little obsessed with that because it's almost as if if especially the original version, it's as if Epcot had an Omnimover dark ride about chocolate. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's really fun, and it's been made more humorous over the years. But is it fun to work on something that's a little, you know, educational, a little informative? Oh yeah, because you're trying to make it more entertaining. You know, it's it's a challenge, and that is fun. Um, again, the the chocolate world ride was uh more upgrades of technology special effects increasing the sets and and the best thing about the second version that gary's group did was uh the thong it's the milk chocolate now i yes. think that's gone i think they've upgraded it again it's I, it's uh, a living breathing thing I, as as always with everything well you yeah. came to disney and you started in the model shop is that correct Right. That's my expertise, models and layouts and track layouts and site plans. And, you know, I, I do area development, and park layouts and stuff. Sure. The, the model shop is kind of a legendary place. Uh, and it seems to me a lot of prominent Imagineers got their start there. Why do you think that is? Why is that such a, a welcoming place to newcomers? Well, that's more from the days when Walt was there. Um, every one of his designers, in fact, were in the model shop doing some, because they were all multi-talented. You know, they, back in that day, everybody had to do everything. Nobody was limited or restricted and you, everybody needed, you know, help. Cause I, I think at one time, Rolly told me that there was only 14 people mm. and they were working on the four shows for um, New York and the Tiki room. And it was, it was, but it's some of the best times he ever had. And so that, that system kind of stayed in place. Now it's been lost over the years because things have gone digital. Um, Gary Goddard for one believes in model building more than anybody I've ever worked with. And it's, it's extremely valuable. He understands the importance of it. Um, but it was also a sales tool. Models were, you know, for people that couldn't understand or, you know, you were asking them for money for something, you had to show them what it was going to look like. And models are sexy and they excite people. You can kind of get down and go through them. They're very, very valuable. So that's where most of the talent was focused. But over the years, they, everybody became kind of specialized and so if you were an illustrator or you were an engineer or some other talent, you were off in a different part of the building. Mm, yes. And I don't know that the model shop holds the value that it used to. I keep my fingers crossed that it does. In some companies, it does not. In some companies, it, it still has a value. Well, there are so many tools that they use today, the 3D visualization and that 
the tech right. for that. But I I think nothing beats the tactile nature of just a beautiful model. I, I think that yeah. that's what they always bring out to really sell something. Well, I have a studio full of them. Maybe someday I'll turn them into a museum. I don't know. <laughs> hey, there's I you know, people love models and you know, they're just beautiful to look at. So I, I understand the appeal, absolutely. Uh, when you came to work there, a lot of notable Imagineers were still working there. Uh, notable early Imagineers, I should say, were still working there. Right. Uh, do you have any experiences early on that left an impression with you working with these, uh, the older generation, shall we say? Well, I, uh, the one that I just cherished so much was Rolly. And uh, he... You know, Rolly's whimsical and he's fun. And uh, Rolly was the youngest Imagineer that, you know, was working with Walt. So Rolly didn't have that stigma of the young kids coming in mm. uh, trying mm-hmm. to take the job. Now, you know, they were all great, but I really attached myself to Rolly. Um, and I still get to talk to Rolly now and then. Uh, he, he was brought in later again. I think he had maybe four different stints at WDI. The, <laughs> the last one was on the Epcot renewals. And that's when I got to work with Rolly directly. He wasn't just uh, a mentor and an advisor. I mean, he was my boss. So that's right. I was yeah. in Florida and he was in California and it was, it was wonderful. Well, he's a treat. He's an absolute treat. He really is. He is. It's a great storyteller too. And they're all true. Let me tell you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he is. And I think, as you said, he's very open to youth. He's very yeah. encouraging. And uh, I can see how he would be a good, a good boss to work for. Well, you know, he had, he had trouble because he was the young guy and uh, I, I won't name names, but there were some folks at the top that, gave him a tough time and he persevered. He stuck with it. He wasn't a quitter. And, and, you know, I learned that from Rolly. I mean, he's, he, he's just wonderful, but it was pretty much the young generation. I was, it was basically the Renaissance because it was the Eisner Wells era when I got to Disney and we just felt like, you know, a whole, it was like a whole new era. It was, a, it was fresh blood and fresh ideas. And then Michael was just excited about everything. And, you know, even Frank, Frank appreciated good ideas. Frank would find the money if he thought the idea was good. And <laughs> they were both a delight to work with because there it was just, there was no limits. Unfortunately, I didn't have the pleasure of working with Walt, but I, I it must've felt the same in a way because Walt was all about ideas. And when Frank and Mike came in, they were all about ideas. Sure. Well, as you say, it was a unique time in the history of the company. They were really dramatically changing the culture. Yes. And, uh, you know, you were in this wave of young Imagineers that came in and had a big impact. Yes. Uh, was there a camaraderie with that group of Imagineers that came in at that time? Absolutely. Um, we all felt like the world was at our feet. We felt like we had been given the greatest opportunity and nothing, there was no limits. I mean, you know, we weren't a nine to five group. I mean, everybody, uh, seven days a week, if you could, you know, if your family allowed it. And, but the only difference was back then there were two camps that, you know, the properties and the, the potential projects were divided up between two different camps. 
So there was a little bit of that competitive edge, which may or may not have helped. I believe it probably helped because it you know pushed the other team to do better. Um, that would that would be the only division, if you'd want to call it. But we all felt like the world was ours, and we ran with it. That's interesting. How was it divided up? Because I know Eisner liked to foster competition. I feel I feel as if I've heard that in the past. Oh yeah. So how was that divided up among among you guys? Well, it was it was two different buildings physically, but it was just basically taking the projects and splitting them depending on the interest level or the expertise of the executive teams. And I, it seemed like it was divided well. I mean. One group was a little more of a fantasy whimsical thing, and the other group was a little more of a cultural historical thing. And then since then, it's been divided many times over. Um, Now they, I believe they call them portfolios and they're property based. Back then, they were project based. So you you weren't, it, it wasn't like you owned Disneyland or you owned Florida as a creative lead. You were you were project oriented. Oh, okay. Was there ever a tension between this new cult, the Eisner culture, and the tradition that Wed had established previously? Actually, no. Um, the the original Imagineers were all retiring just because of their age. You know, a lot of them had been through a tough time um, in the late '80s or early '80s, I guess. Uh, late seventies with the company. And so they were getting frustrated. And so they were, they were, they were wanting to leave anyway. It wasn't, it wasn't where the company was going so much as where it had been and what they had to have, what they had to go through. You know, everybody at, at Imagineering, it was still wet. They thought they were all going to get laid off because the company, Walt Disney company wasn't doing well at the time. Mm. So there, there was no tension between the old guys and the new guys. Oh, that's good. In fact, they were very helpful. That's good. Yes, I know that we've talked on our show previously about how people like Mark Davis had kind of been sidelined before and had gotten frustrated and left. Yes. That was before. Yeah. Yes. And, you know, it's yeah. really. Now he would talk to all of us. He was, Mark was a great mentor. He would, you know, he loved to tell stories. Um, he had, he had nothing against the, the kids. It's, uh, he was more angry at the original company. And then it changed guard with Michael and Frank. So Mark had, was not really a part of that. Right, right, right. Well, once things really get going, you're assigned to Euro Disney project, which must've been extremely exciting. I would imagine. Tell me a bit about working with Jeff Burke on Frontierland. He's a name that people should know. Jeff was our, our creative lead. I mean, his title was producer, but really he was creative director. He was the overall person for the story and the look and the content of the land. Ahmad Jafari was our land architect and he's very creative. And he was actually the one that created the original look of Phantom Manor. And I was the model builder. Each land had a different model builder. And, uh, then we started going up into show design when the projects you know, got funded and each, each attraction became its own team. And so more and more people were added. But the early years were a, a lot of fun because it was the sky's the limit. And we were very fortunate in Frontierland because 
France really loved the Old West. Mm. They were very fond of Bonanza and the Marlboro Man and Red Rocks. And so it was kind of a slam dunk. I mean, uh, Frontierland was almost designed and in the can before parts of the, the rest of the park were even figured out. I mean, oh, that's interesting. Discovery Land took a long time to, to come up with what it was going to be. Uh, you mentioned Ahmad Jafari. He's he's another another yeah. person that people should know. Uh, what was it like working with him? Well, he's wonderful. He's he's talented. He's very kind. Uh, I loved Ahmad because he would sketch something and say, "This is you know like like Phantom Manor for example." Uh, I still have his original drawing of Phantom Manor, and from that drawing, I created the model. Wow! And um, it. There wasn't any in between. I mean, they, they they would come out to the model and scale off the model for the actual construction drawings. Well, and there's, I mean, that's a beautiful model. There's a very famous picture of you working on a model that yeah. was used in a lot of promotional material, and it's it's really a gorgeous piece. You know, I even had smoke coming out of the chimneys, and that boy, that back in that day, we could we could just do anything we wanted. I mean, I had. The entire attraction in one to 50 scale, which is basically quarter inch to the foot. It's like O scale model railroading. Oh, wow. So inside and outside. And then we did a one inch, which is dollhouse scale, where you walk through it at head height of the entire second half of the ride, Phantom Canyon and getting buried alive and all that part of it. It was beautiful models. That's fantastic. What's one thing that's really remarkable about this frontier land is that it has an entire overarching story for the entire area, which was really something new at the time, something that had never been done before. Right. What was it like bringing the Phantom Manor into that overall narrative? Who was responsible for creating that meta story? Well, Jeff was responsible for Phantom Manor being in Frontierland. Um, the, the executive team early on decided that Big Thunder needed to be the icon on the island. Mm. Uh, and then Je uh, um, Pat Burke, who's not related to Jeff Burke, but Pat was the king of Western propping. You know, he had worked on every single Big Thunder with Skip Lang, and he had gone all over the country and Mexico and everywhere finding mining props. So Jeff and Pat together really put together the mythology of Thunder Mesa. It really is a remarkable, a remarkable land. Uh, many. Yeah. People can kind of consider it to be the best instance of a frontier land in a Disney park. And it really seems as if WDI was working at their highest level on that, the whole Paris project. What was it like to be a part of that? Did you realize at the time the work you were doing was really a cut above of what Imagineering might normally get away with? We, we felt like it was. The only frustration was, and it was a long project. I mean, we must have been on that for five years. The only frustration was that it went through the budget cutting period and we almost lost Phantom Manor and pirates. Mm -hmm. And it was like, this can't be, you know, there was also a big deal with main street. Uh, Eddie had tried this thing with the roaring twenties and uh, that did not go over well with Michael, but he really had an interesting take to main street. Um, so he, Eddie basically designed main street twice. And uh, that's maybe one of the more beautiful main streets as well, particularly when you add the arcades, you know, the, 
through the backside, which um, came about because Paris required a certain amount of covered queue and covered walkway. Mm, mm. And I, I remember somebody mentioning originally that the budget was based on Tokyo Disneyland and they were able to take the dollars and move them around and make them more, more artistic representation of you know, how to cover areas and cover queues. And it's, it turned out to be probably the most beautiful park. Certainly the most expensive. <laughs> Well, I think you speak of those arcades. That was a fascinating way of doing doing what Tokyo had to do by covering Main Street, but in a much better yeah. and thematic and just absolutely gorgeous way. Yeah, yeah. And he gets a lot of credit for Main Street. It's just it's just stunning. It's absolutely stunning. Well, the whole park, as you said, the whole park is. It is. Uh, back to Phantom Manor, just briefly. Obviously, Walt had famously insisted his haunted mansion be immaculate on the outside, <laughs> and Phantom Manor is exactly the opposite. Was that controversial to make the manor appear run down? Oh my god! Oh my god! That kept me up a few nights. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, I, I remember Alice came in one time and was just upside down over that. Alice Davis. Um, I can imagine. But we just felt like, you know, it's Paris and it's the Wild West. And I think we could take a little bit of liberty with it. And I, I think I think the outside is a nice compromise, if you will. It's not frightening. It's just run down. So I hate to think what Walt would say, but we felt like we should do something different. Well, you never know. I mean, it, it was a different, a different theme, a different place, and it really works for that, that setting. You wouldn't have that immaculate house probably in that setting. So I, I, I think most people agree. I just, um, I, you know, times have changed back when, when we were there and doing Disneyland Paris, we really lived by the rules and the philosophies. Now, you know, the rules are different. Um, I'm not saying people don't respect the past, but I think there's a little more freedom. That's true. I, I, I think you're probably right. And that, that older generation isn't around. There are only a few people really that remain from that generation that are around to, to, uh, you know, set you on fire <laughs> when you transgress. Well, you know, it, it, it wasn't even the guys that were around. I mean, I, I had, I just felt like, I had to live up to Walt's expectations, everything that I did. And when I was art director at Disneyland, that really weighed heavy because that was Walt's park. And we unfortunately were in an era where it was budget cuts and maintenance. And um, there was this period where Disneyland's management was going to remove seven different attractions and I had a really tough time with that one and because I had to be the one to do some of the demo and do some of the replacements and um, it kind of took its toll. There were, there were some good ideas that came out of it, but at the same time, it was like, why do we have to do this? Why can't we just maintain a water pump or replace a Skyway cable or, you know? Uh, yes. That was, I think for anybody who lived through that time, that was a, uh... That was a rough period, and for you guys, I would imagine a period of great scrutiny from the outside. You, you know, you were doing what you 
had to do, but there was an increasing amount of public scrutiny. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, the internet was just coming on, and that was about the time that I was doing some um, enhancements to the Haunted Mansion, and then we had that whole period in 97 with pirates. Yes. Um, you know, with the <laughs> politically correct thing, which wasn't. And uh, we, again, we tried to enhance it because uh, the project came about because world of motion animated characters were available and they were the same molds uh, from pirates. And so it's like, well, let's just add more pirates. And, you know, we had four or five vignettes that we added, uh, but it became a political thing. And then mostly due to the internet and the press. Oh yes. I, I, I remember it well. It was, and it's so funny looking back now, what, what a scandal it was among fans. And then of course it made its way into the media. And, you know, now in the years that have ensued, we've had much more sweeping changes than that. Yeah. But uh, it was really the early ones that kind of left their mark because it was, I guess the first time there had been that kind of blowback about a change. Well, there was, there was some good things that actually came out of it. I mean, we unfortunately didn't get to build everything, but uh, I'll never, you know, Cascade Peak, which was a, a mountain on the rivers of America with a bunch of waterfalls and they would not maintain the pumps. It was rotting and they didn't want to fix it. And so um, Disneyland management, I was a little bit autonomous because I was down at Disneyland as the art director and they came to me and said, what would you do to replace Cascade Peak with an attraction? And they specifically asked for Tower of Terror, and which is enormous. Um, facility is just enormous, way out of scale for Disneyland. And, but what we talked about was a way to take the Tower of Terror ride mechanism and bury a third of it in the ground and retheme it as um, geyser falls, which was a mine shaft built over a geyser basin on the river. It was a really neat idea. It actually ended up scaling well to Disneyland because we were, because we cut it down so far, it, it cut the budget almost in half, oh, wow. but Imagineering did not approve of it because they felt like it was more dynamic than big thunder and overpowered big thunder. Interesting. But I understand after I left uh, Imagineering that they took that concept and turned it into, I think they call it Geyser Mountain for Paris. It's a whole different thing. I mean, that was more of a structure above ground, big, big, tall building. Um, but it, and unfortunately, that didn't get built there either. But, you know, these ideas never die. They, they go in the shelf and somebody in another generation for another purpose will bring them back to life. Exactly. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that because that was something I, I had wanted to ask you about because I had first heard about that project with regards to Paris as an attraction for Frontierland there. So I was interested to find out that it had originated as a Disneyland thing. Yes. And that would have been a fascinating addition there alongside the rivers of America. Very different. Um, Pat Burke did the drawings, I believe for Disneyland Paris, but my understanding is he was not able to bury the structure. So it's quite tall and probably did not get built because it just didn't scale to Disneyland Paris. I don't think, but it was a little more charming for Disneyland because it was this rickety ramshackle little mine shaft 
something you'd see at Knott's Berry Farm. Yes. That was built around the geysers. And so the, the concept was that you got in the elevator to go down into the mine, and all of a sudden one of the geysers erupts underneath you and lifts you to the top of the tower. Now it's wide open, so you can see everything. And then the geyser quits and plunges you down into the ground. That's It's such a fun idea. And I would imagine it's a challenge designing for Disneyland because you're working at a scale that's so much smaller than the other parks. You really have to keep things yes. to that smaller scale or it will totally throw everything off. But I, I was raised on that. So it wasn't a challenge for me. I mean, I, I, I you know, am a model builder and I would tend to think smaller scale. It, it was interesting the first time I went to Walt Disney World because everything was so big. Yes. And I would just wasn't used to it. Yes. I think everybody has the experience one way or the other. We grew up with Disney World going yeah, the other yeah. way. It's like, oh, this is so cute. Everything's yeah. so, you know, yeah. it's such a smaller scale. And you the, really. The castle so dinky. <laughs> no, not at all. It, you just get, you kind of get what Walt was going for and. You know, you're a model maker. Walt was a model maker. Walt loved miniatures. Yeah. And you really get right. what he was going for with creating this sort of miniature world. It's a lot of fun. Uh, you mentioned Alice Davis, and you've said uh, in the past that one of your biggest early influences was the book they put out about the making of Pirates of the Caribbean. And Phantom Manor uses right. some of Mark's concepts for Western River Expedition. What was your impetus to bring that into the attraction and uh, maybe some thoughts about his work in general? Well, we were all inspired. That entire generation was inspired by Western River Expedition. And, you know, just sick that it wasn't built. I mean, obviously, Mark was upset about it, but we were all looking forward to that. And we knew that with Phantom Manor, we had the opportunity to do a new finale. Jeff was very influenced by Phantom of the Opera. He had gone to London, Jeff Burke had, had seen Phantom of the Opera. And so that's where the whole character and storyline came from. My influence was primarily the end of the attraction where we were trying to create a Western, you know, Thunder Mesa, Western River Expedition. We had the opportunity to do all those little buildings and characters and stuff. So it worked out really well. They were they were a perfect blend. And it was just a, a way to pay tribute to Mark and, and what maybe was one of his biggest visions that was never realized. Absolutely. Was he pleased that it revived some of those notions? Mark never got to see it. Oh, that's a shame. Yeah, yeah. Jeff and I have both been to the Altry Museum in Griffith Park, and it's really just a fantastic experience. Uh, I saw that you were involved in its development. I just wondered if you could tell us how, how you were involved in that. Well, I, I sculpted the rocks, the model for the rocks in the garden, um, oh, which okay. I've, I don't know if they're even still there. They, if, they're, if they're still there, they're more than likely overgrown. <laughs> but the idea was that when you walked out the door, you you saw California's west through the rock work. You, you know, it was the Vasquez rocks. Uh, it was the high Sierra granite. It was the boulders of Chatsworth where Lone Ranger was filmed. And it was basically five different zones that kind of blended together. It's a, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a beautiful place. Uh, it's very neat that for a time, Imagineering was 
working on outside projects like that. Yep. Well, we thought we were going to do a lot more of that kind of thing, but it just didn't happen. And likewise with uh, some of the location-based stuff, like Disney Quest, that was that was something that um, we thought had a lot of potential as a line of business, but it never went anywhere. Yeah, that, that's a shame because I, I I agree that there was potential, but it requires a certain amount of follow-through, executive follow-through, I would imagine, to stay committed to something like that. There was just uh, leadership changes a lot at WDI back in those days. And, you know, whoever was driving the bus just felt like, well, we need to do this, not that. And so it primarily was after Frank died. Um, there was a lot of questions and, and just uncertainty. A lot of, you know, I mean, there was, there seemed to be some criticism over, why did California Adventure not get the budgets that Disney seized did? Things like that were, you know, it's just mm. a lot of the turmoil. A little bit scary, but they got through it and they got through it in a great way because some of the stuff that's come out of Imagineering in the last 15 to 20 years is just remarkable. I'm so happy to see Rise of the Resistance because that was the sequential attraction idea we were trying to do with Indiana Jones at one time where you got on a ride, got off, did a walkthrough thing, got on another ride, escaped. And like I said, good ideas never die and they never have. I mean, it doesn't matter which generation came up with an idea. If it didn't get funded, it was saved and somebody else would pull it out of the files. You know, I'm glad you brought up Indy because the the original concept for that is such a fascinating concept and you know you've said you you love the disneyland that never was we love the disneyland that never was and this was one of those big ideas and it seems like there was a real um drive there for a while for these destination attractions where uh, it would take you to a place drop you off and then there would be another experience it was, I have to say, an unfunded drive. I mean, we were all, all, all creative designers are trying to do the most and the best they can. With indie, we had two things going on at once. And, and my particular era of indie, we, we were trying to put the two of them together because there was the motion-based simulator, which was the natural transition from Star Tours. And that's how the attraction was sold, as imagine driving Star Tours through Pirates of the Caribbean. It was a, it was an instant get, you know, it's that old thing. If you can say it in one sentence and people understand it. Well, that was being funded. Uh, at the same time, George had a contract. George Lucas had a contract with Disney to use Indiana Jones by, I believe it was 1998 or they'd lose it. So I tried to put them together. And that's what the grand scheme of the lost expedition was because the Motion base had one capacity and the ore car had another capacity. George really wanted the ore car ride. And unfortunately, it didn't have the capacity the park wanted. So what we came up with was essentially the same sequence you can see in Rise of the Resistance, where mm. you took the, the motion base and got stuck in the temple and had to, to walk through the temple like a haunted house, got trapped. And people that could not get out were forced to take the mine car escape. 
and the other, the rest of the people were able to escape the temple. And we did that through a, a series of moving walls and so forth that allowed the capacity to thin itself down. It was really, really neat, but it was too much money. Oh, that's very interesting. Way too much money. Yes. In fact, we actually knew that they weren't going to, they weren't going to be able to build it because it was too much money. So eventually they just cut it down to the motion base ride because that's what they had invested in. Right. Uh, yeah, I, I, I just think the idea of this sort of multi-stage attraction is, is a really appealing one. And uh, as you said, I'm glad they finally sort of hit upon a way to make it work, but the indie concept was really appealing. And there's the famous rendering with all the parts of it coming through this huge central area. Right. It reminds me of the Calico mine train at knots just on an enormous scale. Um, that's what it was inspired by. Was it? Uh, that's, that's funny. The, the glory hole. Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. It, it's Bud Herbert's glory hole. Yes. Yeah, just on a massive scale. It, it, it's just seems really appealing to have that much motion on several vertical levels, kind of like, Tomorrowland, like the 67 Tomorrowland, where there's a lot going on at different levels. See, that was always one of Walt's philosophies that I just kept close to the heart because he felt like you needed the kinetics. If you were on one ride, you should see another ride or maybe more than one ride. Or if you were even walking through a space, you should see multiple experiences and it inspires people to continue on and do more. It's, it's a discovery thing. Interesting. That that was that was a primary philosophy of Walt. Uh, are there any elements of that indie attraction? I mean, obviously, it would have been great to have the whole thing, but any elements in particular you wish you'd been able to save? Well, I I was very passionate about the mine car ride to to a fault actually because mm -hmm. the company was not willing to pursue it, even though George Lucas wanted it. Um. Uh, I would say that the thing that I'm the most happy with is actually the queue because a lot of the ideas that we had developed for the walkthrough portion of the ride are used in the queue. In fact, the, you know, the infamous bamboo pole holding up the ceiling was the very first thing ever drawn by Herb Ryman. <laughs> and so it, it really, it's, it touches my heart every time I walk by and see it, whether it's working or not, it's, it's there. That's a fun little touchstone. Yes. Well, you know, you worked on this. You also worked on the Lucas spaceport, which you've talked about uh, in the past. And I just wonder what it was like working with George Lucas, who had to have been an intimidating <laughs> presence at that, especially at that time. Well, he didn't. That's the, that's why I laugh because he, he was the most unimposing person you can imagine. He, he never had this feeling of hierarchy. Uh, when he would walk into a room, you know, he would talk to a model builder before he talked to a, a, an executive. Uh -huh. I mean, he, again, he was all about ideas. He cut to the chase. He, he never was demanding or imposing in any way. He just, it, most of us just had this enormous have continue to have this enormous respect for George Lucas because he's the one that created the IP. Mm. And uh, to me, that's everything. If, if you're the guy that comes up with the character and the environment 
I think you get the final say. Sure. But unfortunately, that wasn't the case with his contract. So George didn't get his way very often. And that's crazy <laughs> to me that you would have an asset like George Lucas and would sort of run him through the corporate ringer when it's George Lucas. Yeah. Yeah. George got pretty upset after a while. You know, he was, I remember when we were working with him really on early on and I, I couldn't believe it, but we had put in maybe two years, three years on the ride, the, the big ride with the mine car and everything else in Adventureland. And Michael said, well, you know, we got this stunt show in Florida and it's pretty popular. And so we had to change gears. And for a year, we created the Young Indiana Jones Stunt Spectacular. <clears throat> and George kind of like went along with it. He wasn't happy, but, you know, it was fun because we got to go to Skywalker Ranch and oh, wow. um, have lunch with George Lucas in his house and all these these terrific experiences only because we were trying to sell him on the stunt show attraction. And, you know, George had no interest in that. He, although he was working on the young Indiana Jones character at the time. So he, he was able to help us a little bit with the IP. And I'll never forget the day that we spread out storyboards on the floor of his office. And he just kind of walked on, on them <laughs> and walked out of the room. And it's like, Oh my God. <laughs> well, if you're George Lucas, I guess you can do that. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, that had to be just a, a surreal <laughs> experience. Yeah, and by the time that the Indiana Jones Adventure opened, I think George had moved on. Well, he had to be frustrated with the pace that things moved because he had started talking with Disney in the early 80s, but it took them a long time, uh, in some cases yeah. decades, to fully use those properties. So I'm sure he was frustrated. Yeah, he was. He was very disappointed about the mine car. That's funny that he would he would stick to that uh, because it seems like such a natural progression. Uh, uh, I mean, that movie is like a theme park ride, so it, it stands is. to reason that he would want that. Yeah. Well, you know, like all good things, I mean, there's there's something good comes out of everything. And what I'm grateful for with the Indiana Jones stunt show is that I got a hearse in front of the Haunted Mansion, which, you know, I have to admit was a little bit of a conspiracy. Um, I shouldn't have been buying props as early as I was for a show that wasn't going to get funded. But when I saw that hearse, I knew it needed to be at the Haunted Mansion. So we wrote a scene in the show to use the hearse. And then I was able to buy the hearse and put it in the warehouse. Oh, that's until hilarious. we were able to put it in front of the Haunted Mansion. I see. That's that's imagineering at its finest. That's, that's thinking ahead. Well, and if I was still there, I'd be fired. <laughs> <laughs> that's so funny. Well, it, I, I'm glad you mentioned that stunt show because that was something they had actually announced that at one point for the Disney decade. And I had always wondered what, you know, what, what that was about. Cause it kind of came and went and sort of vanished as so many projects do. Mike, Michael Eisner was really fond of that concept. And um, basically what it was doing was taking the sets from the Florida show and rewriting a different story over it. And because we had to build it in Frontierland, because it was the only, it's actually where Star Wars, where Galaxy's Edge is, um, it was the only place it could physically fit. Mm -hmm. We had to retheme it to the Old West. 
And that's where Indy in 1812, no, I'm sorry, 1912 would fit um, as a theme. You know, so we had Indy's little cottage from the third film, the little, little farmhouse, and you walk to, you know, the circus had come to town, the Dun, Dun & Duffy Circus from the film. And Indy was a Boy Scout that came to the show, and he saw his future in these scenes that you see from the Florida show. If that makes any sense, it did at the time. <laughs> but we're really glad that they wanted the ride. Oh yeah, I think the you know I think everybody's happy we got the ride. Absolutely. Well, I think what actually happened was that the budget for the stunt show came in much higher than they thought it was going to be, and Michael just threw up his arms and said, "Oh heck with it, let's just build the ride." And everybody was like, "Yes." <laughs> <laughs> that was a good day. Uh huh. Well, you know, talking about the indie being a destination attraction and the original concept where it sort of drops you off and you do other things, the Atlantis attraction was another concept like that. It was. It, thank you for mentioning that one. Um, that had a couple of different lives, mostly because Disneyland Maintenance was going to shut down the subs. And Marty in particular was very determined to save the subs. And, uh, so we had talked to Don Hahn over at animation and they were coming up with the Atlantis film. And so we just put that over the top of it. But the biggest part of where that came from was Epcot with the seas pavilion. And the fact that Imagineering thought we should take the sub ride to the seas pavilion and get out and go through the pavilion experience and then walk back out into Tomorrowland. Mm, and um, during the development of the Atlantis story, we had Tom Thordarson as our illustrator, who is just an, a wonderful painter. And he created some very dramatic pieces of art. And we were able to come up with a storyline of this Leviathan that grabs the sub and just rips it in half. And so we had some pretty terrifying effects. At, you know, at, the, at that era, they were coming up with alien encounter and some very frightening things. And so we had the subs leaking and sparking and doing all kinds of stuff. And then you had to get out of the sub to escape. That sounds like it would have, it would have been a hit <laughs> for sure. It's uh, a real sensory experience. It would have been terrifying for sure. Cause you're actually underwater. And, um, I don't know, you know, they, they did Nemo and that's a, that's a happy thing. So mm -hmm. all's well, I guess that ends well. <laughs> well, you guys really made a, and this is no pun intended, but a big splash with that, the Atlantis project, it really lit up the early Disney internet with rumors. <laughs> I, I, um, I did something I shouldn't have done. I, you know, we had our little, um, test experiment out there on the, in the, in the docks where we were testing the special effects and stuff inside of a tent. And one Friday morning, Josh Shipley and I went out there and put a banner on that tent and flew, flew the Atlantis flag. And oh my, <laughs> I don't think it lasted four hours. Oh, but it was well documented in those four hours. It, it made, uh, it made the rounds for sure. It was one of those times I thought it was my last day at Imagineering. <laughs> but so the park was not, was not pleased. No, no. Cause their agenda was to shut down the subs, but even that was going too far in Marty's eyes. So, <laughs> yeah, well, I feel like a lot of projects from this era 
you know, Tony Baxter has talked a lot about how doing the Tarzan treehouse, which you also worked on, was a way to save the treehouse from being turned into a shop. It absolutely was. So I feel like a lot of projects from this era were coming up with creative ways to save things from being yanked. Well, there was uh, there was the target list of about seven. Tiki Room was one of them. Treehouse, certainly. I uh, can't remember them all. Cascade Peak. I mean, there was, oh, uh, uh, Carnation Gardens. I mean, they had their reasons for labor, maintenance, you name it. And they were they were determined to take these things out. Skyway. Mm. It was it was a little frustrating, yeah. But a little creative, uh, creative reuse <laughs> saved it, saved at least a few of them. Uh, one Disneyland project I wanted to ask you about uh, that I saw you worked on was the Critter Country 500. Yes. Which is something I've heard a little bit about over the years, and it sounded really fun. That one never made it off the drawing boards. Both Disneyland and Imagineering wanted Winnie the Pooh, and somebody had determined that it was going to go in the bear country theater. And so, um, I, you know, I, I was a fan of Mark Davis's and I really liked the characters and I thought, is there any way to propose, even if it's not for that facility somewhere as second attraction for critter country. So I took an idea that was basically Mr. Toad's wild ride and had a whole storyline of trying to, to beat the bears at a soapbox derby. And it was basically taking wacky races, the Hanna-Barbera mm-hmm. cartoon, and um, putting it in a dark ride that was about three times the size of Mr. Toad. And I hired Kirk Hansen, who was a Hanna-Barbera story artist. So he was proficient at characters. He also was a huge fan of Mark Davis. So he created about six different character drawings to help sell the idea. And I had a layout and a model and a, and a story treatment. And Chris Merritt did the little poster that I think people have seen floating around on the internet Yes, for the Critter Country 500. So the three of us, you know, tried to get that. It didn't get very far. Imagineering didn't like it at all. It, uh, it never went anywhere. That's a shame. Never even got to Disneyland management. That, uh, that, that, that sounds like a lot of fun. Uh, and especially for someone who loves the bears, loves those designs. There's a lot of opportunity for humor there. Yeah. They're great characters. Sir. Well, you had the opportunity, as you said, to work with Rolly Crump on Epcot and Rolly and Epcot are some of our favorite things working on the land, which is really one of those iconic Epcot experiences. What were some of the considerations that you had in mind when you were trying to help update it? Well, it was all about technology. Um, you know, the the corporate sponsor thing had run out after 10 years. Uh, the original Epcot was only 10 years of sponsorships. So Nestle came in and um, they had certain requirements and that's where Food Rocks came from. That was a Jim Steinmeier creation. Mm. And Rolly had a lot of things left over from things that didn't happen, primarily the balloons and the circus feel of the pavilion. And then I would say my influence was primarily the opening of the boat ride through the rainstorm and the, the water flowing down and Interesting. all of that. Cause that was all about, you know, how can we get more special effects in 
and, and extend the environment, basically. And Carl Hodges, who was originally involved with the technology of the pavilion, came back and did some stuff with the lab at the end of the boat ride. And so it's, it, and it's probably going to go through it again, I think. I think there's another one coming up. I, I find it interesting that Hodges was brought back. It's, it's, very, um, it's very neat that they were able to reuse him again. He seems like he was an interesting fellow or is an interesting fellow. He is. He's very, very knowledgeable. They, back in the days, Disney was smart enough to bring in experts. You know, Walt did it originally with Tomorrowland, but in Epcot, you know, they had the Seas Pavilion, the Land Pavilion. They were doing a space pavilion that was very different than what's there now. But they would bring in people that knew what they were doing, that understood the future. And Carl was the last one to come back in and do that. I find it fun that you worked on that opening scene because I've, I know I've tweeted in the past <laughs> floating through that scene that I would ride like an hour long ride of just that, just that scene. It's so oh, peaceful wow. and uh, relaxing. It's a, it's such a great way to kick off that ride with all the, you know, the rain and the water coming down. So it's, it's fun that you worked on that. I hope they still have all those effects, right? I mean, we, we had some neat stuff you know, dry for wet rain and all kinds of things. We even were working with mud, which was interesting. It was a challenge, but I'm not sure any of those effects are still working today, but it was a beautiful environment. I know that. Yeah. For no, a small little room. It's a, it's a nice atmosphere that it creates. Did Rolly seem pleased to be able to revisit one of his old projects? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Very definitely. He had several in mind. He, you know, he also was very influential over interventions. So we had whirly gigs all over the plaza, which was wonderful. Yes. And then another thing Rolly really wanted to do from the original Epcot was called Kidcot, which was a play area for children that was technology and science and, and education. And I'm really anxious to see the play pavilion because I, I hope, fingers crossed that it has a Rolly Crump feel to it. I know he's not involved in it, but you know, good ideas never die. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, did you, did you work on the kid cot at all? Yeah, we did several different things. Uh, and basically all that was left of that was the wonderful little, uh, model railroad set next to Germany. Oh, of course. It was part of it. It was, it was, it was kind of a storybook land meets a German beer garden. And then, um, uh, there was a whole other area that was games and play stuff. And we did some of it for the, uh, lobby for food rocks. There were little interactives and stuff. Yes, absolutely. Food rocks is another attraction that has, I don't know if you're aware, but it has uh, quite a following, uh, you know, it's, you're kidding. Uh, no, no, I'm, it has, I'm not. I'll tell you anytime I post a picture on, on Twitter of, any artwork from that or any photos about that, there are people that go nuts because there are people that love that attraction. Well, that's a surprise to me. I thought most people hated it. They were so angry about Kitchen Cabaret going away. Understandably. Oh, wow. I, I didn't know that. Well, see, I was a huge Kitchen Cabaret fan as well, but there, there, there are a lot of people who really love Food Rocks out there. I didn't know that. <laughs> Sorry. I was interested to find out that there's a fan base for Enchanted Lab at Williamsburg. 
which I thought was one of the better shows ever done. I am aware. I never got to see that, but I'm aware that there is definitely a fan base for that. I've heard people talk about that quite a bit. So, you know, you know, you never know when you're working on something, the effect that it has on people. Well, no, uh, particularly good effects. I mean, you, you know about bad effects right away <laughs> and I've, I've heard of you, but it's really wonderful to know that. I just feel so lucky to be a part of these things. Well, aside from everything we, we we've talked about, are there any other projects from your Disney years that we left out? Anything that you're particularly proud of? If I had to think it would probably be another idea that never made it off the drafting table was a future city for the carousel theater for Disneyland Tomorrowland. Ah. And it was basically a, uh, what I did was I took, the Bob McCall art that's so famous that was at the end of Horizons. Yes. It showed the family looking across at the big city of the future. And the story in the Carousel Theater was similar to It's a Wonderful Life. And I was, I, I may be the only one, but I was very happy to see the film Tomorrowland that Brad Bird did because that was basically what this city of the future attraction was going to be for Tomorrowland. That sounds very interesting. And it felt like, well, it lives on. Yes. That's a great idea. And I think a great, that would be a great way to use that theater in a really sort of positive way. That idea never made it an hour. (laughs) (laughs) It was over with and dead faster than any of them. Well, uh, you know, you've been extremely busy since you left Disney. Uh, I wondered if you have any favorite projects from that period that you'd like to talk about. Well, we did a wonderful thing with Gary Goddard from Mexico that was a Cirque du Soleil project with one of the resorts down in Puerto Vallarta. And um, it was a joint venture between three partners. And it unfortunately had to be broken up. I believe the resort is being built, but without the, without the Gary Goddard level of entertainment for sure. And probably not even including the Cirque du Soleil element. Hmm. There's a lot of that on the internet and it was, Gary was probably more excited about that project than anything else we've ever worked on because it was a day night experience and it was maybe not financially great, but it was, a really strong idea and hopefully that'll see the light of day one day. hopefully so somewhere absolutely uh another project a few years ago you tried to get a regional park off the ground in Sexapaha, north carolina which is near really gig woods my old stomping grounds right near jeff's and this was really exciting for north carolina theme park fans but it didn't work out unfortunately what do you think the prognosis is for regional boutique parks like that Well, I think it's very high, particularly with what's been happening with the pandemic. I think there's even a hope for roadside America. I think people are maybe more willing to get in their cars and, um, you know, who knows, drive in movies, drive through attractions, just roadside attractions. So I think, you know, we did a lot of homework on demographics and we were going to do the right thing. It was an environmental project which fits the area. It was financially sound. Uh, my big thing was saving the trees and, and in fact, honoring them and making it like a treehouse resort. And, um, we just made a huge mistake in 
publicizing the project before it was funded. And that was a business partner's decision to try to help get funding, which we never saw. Mm. And um, it had, had we gotten the funding and then done more of a public presentation and let people know what the attraction was, I think it would have been received very well. But um, unfortunately, now is not the time or place. I still have the IP and um, hope to pursue it somewhere sometime. This market definitely is strong and should have something. Um, I'm kind of driven by the families with young children. So I'm hoping to do a little bit of a Halloween experience, at least for them, you know, because we have lots of zombie and blood and guts and scare you to death in the dark. I want to do something that's more of a Hallmark card for kids. And uh, we're pursuing that. I think that is a fantastic idea. And especially for this area, you know, you said it's, it's an absolutely gorgeous area to begin with. It's a beautiful area and it's so central in North Carolina, North Carolina, I feel is a real hotbed of theme park fans. Oh, really? And I know people were really excited about that, but also, you know, the families and I think doing something with Halloween, because as someone who's not a fan of the blood and guts personally, uh, I think having a place that families could really enjoy something cute would be a really nice. Yeah. Well, we'll, we'll give it a shot. I think, uh, you know, knowing families in that area, Jeff, for example, I think that would, that would go over very well. I would think it would be really exciting and rewarding to bring Disney level design quality to small parks. It's almost like missionary work. You know, you're bringing the Disney ideals to the kind <laughs> of parks that typically get overlooked. Yeah. It's uh, and, and I think the trick is to not shoot too high. I mean, I've always been a limited capacity kind of guy. I, I like to do something that's a little more, I don't want to call it a VIP experience, but it's, you know, it's, it's about keeping the capacity down, making it a little more intimate. Um, you're not standing in two hour lines and there's not 60,000 people. And, and so everything I'm trying to do on my own and with other partners is, is that type of, of experience with the Disney quality. Yes. And I think you can do that even on a small scale on a small budget. It's just about, you know, ambition and, you know, that's something else I wanted to ask about you in your early career, you worked on some pretty elaborate attractions and even dark rides for regional projects like six flags and Hershey and Bush gardens. seems like it was a really ambitious time for the industry. And today regional parks really seem happy to just be simple steel coaster parks and not much more than that. Do you feel like the industry is lacking that certain ambition these days? No, um, I don't. I, I, Believe it or not, I really think there's an unlimited potential because now that we've had this pandemic, the entire industry has to rethink the product mm. from the ground up. Not, not, and, and perhaps they'll actually even be working a little closer together, operations, maintenance, and the creative element to come up with a new type of experience. I'm kind of a dinosaur, so I'm not the guy that's going to 
probably come up with the idea. But I, I, I love the fact that there's a new generation of new blood and new ideas and new technology that will potentially solve this problem so that, so that we can get a, a different type of entertainment experience geared towards, you know, a healthy situation. So I think this, the, the pandemic has actually created a need for something different. I think you're probably right. Well, you, you've touched on this a little already, but you know, my last question to you is what's next, what's next for you? What, what do you want to do in this industry going forward? I am actually writing a series of stories for uh, middle grade for eight to 12 year olds. It's a, it's a character I've created. It's a combination of reality to fantasy and it's an adventure. And each episode will be a different location with different experiences. And each episode has a critical life lesson in it for children. It's, it's a fun, dramatic story with a lot of fantasy elements and environments in it. And, um, I hope it catches on. I'm, I'm currently finishing up episode three and I've got about 10 of them and it's, you know, it's potential for licensing and merchandising and theme parks and all that, but just getting the books out there is what's important to me because I want to inspire kids. I want them to, to, to have an inspiration for adventure and nature and building and inventing and creating. And that's how I feel like I can keep it moving forward. Well, that sounds great. I hope you'll stay in touch and keep us updated because it sounds, uh, sounds like a very worthwhile project. It is. It's a lot of fun. It's, it's like recreating my childhood for a new generation. That's great. That's great. Well, Bob, uh, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing so many of your memories. We really appreciate your time. Well, it's been an honor. Thank you so much, Jeff and Michael. Thank you. So that wraps up our Progress City Town Hall with Bob Berenick. We'd like to thank Bob for joining us and for sharing his memories and stories and insights. Uh, it was really enjoyable. What do you think, Jeff? Oh, yes. I mean, so many questions answered from this time period, which was such a prolific time period for Walt Disney Imagineering and, you know, kind of turns into a period that folks in Disneyland are kind of dread remembering, but... Bob was one of the good guys, and we appreciate him taking the time to explain those stories to us, and we wish him well with his future projects. It sounds exciting. I know. I'm, I'm really excited to see what he comes up with. I really think there's a great future. There's, there's so many possibilities available in little regional parks and things to do some really fun and exciting and innovative stuff and uh, just make, you know, make people happy. Give them a nice, relaxing, pretty experience that they can enjoy that's in their own backyard. And I think that is a great and noble goal. So best wishes to him and hopefully he'll stay in touch and let us know how things are going. If you would like to stay in touch and let us know how things are going, you can always email us at podcast at progresscityusa.com. You can find me on Twitter at progresscityusa. Jeff is now findable at Jeff G. Crawford, which is nice. 
Yes. And uh, let us know. Let us know what you think. Uh, if you have any follow-up questions for Bob, let us know. We'll pass them along. And if there's anybody else you'd like to hear from, anything you'd like to hear about, uh, just give us a shout. We'd love to hear from you. That's right. And uh, please subscribe to our podcast so you can keep abreast because we're always posting new stuff. And as people always say, rate and review us on iTunes because actually it does help. So we would appreciate the feedback and the rating, but uh, especially the feedback. Absolutely. Absolutely. We love to hear. So thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed and we'll be back. Uh, what's coming up next? Well, I'm very excited to say we are going to be taking a trip to 1980. We're going to be listening into uh, in a two part episode, our first uh, side A and side B of the 1980 official soundtrack to Disneyland and Walt Disney World listening to it and going into some detail about the history of the music. It'll be kind of like a radio show. It'll be a lot of fun. Exactly. And we have some special guests coming up to talk about Disney music that I am super excited about. Uh, Really, 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 really excited about. So we'll have all that for you coming up in the next couple of months. And until then, give us a shout. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you next.